Welcome to a Nutrition and Clinical Practice podcast. I am Dr. Berkeley Lemketkai, Contributing Editor of Nutrition and Clinical Practice and a member of the Physician Engagement Committee of the American Society of Parental and Enteral Nutrition, or ASPEN. Joining me today is Dr. Senthil Sankaraman and Terry Schindler, authors of the review entitled, An Update on the Management of Vitamins and Minerals in Cystic Fibrosis. This article is published in the October 2022 issue of Nutrition and Clinical Practice and continues the collaboration between the journal and the Aspen Physician Engagement Committee. Dr. Sankaraman is a pediatric gastroenterologist in the Division of Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition at the University Hospital's Rainbow Babies and Children's Hospital, and is also an associate professor at Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine in Cleveland, Ohio. Ms. Schindler is a registered dietitian at the Leroy W. Matthews Cystic Fibrosis Center, also at the University Hospital's Rainbows Babies and Children's Hospital in Cleveland, Ohio. Senthil and Terry, uh, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much for inviting us for this podcast. Before we start our discussion, I would like to ask our guests if you have any disclosures on this topic that you would like to share with us. I'm a consultant for Nestle, but nothing pertinent to this topic I'm going to discuss today. I'm also a consultant for Nestle, Chiesi, and on the Speakers Bureau for Abbey, but nothing that is pertinent to this topic. So your article touches on an important topic that is not often discussed. As most listeners may not often see or care for patients with cystic fibrosis, could you share some initial thoughts on the nutritional and gastrointestinal challenges associated with this? Uh, cystic fibrosis is a rare genetic condition which is inherited in an autosomal recessive fashion. The incidence is approximately 1 in 3,500 live births. There are about 30,000 people with cystic fibrosis in the United States. The disease is caused by mutations in the CFTR gene, which encodes for a protein called CFTR protein. CFTR stands for cystic fibrosis transmembrane conductance regulator protein, which is a chloride channel protein. So this protein is expressed in epithelial cells in various systems in our body. The main role of this CFTR is to keep the, the chloride, sodium, and water flow across the surface. And when there is a dysfunction in CFTR, the secretions become very thick and viscous. That leads to a variety of manifestations in the organ systems. So the most common organ system is our lungs. The patients will have frequent pulmonary exacerbations. They can also have sinusitis. The CFTR is also expressed in the entire GI tract. So patients can have a lot of abdominal and gastrointestinal symptoms, such as acid reflux. They can also have constipation. They can have rectal prolapse. They can have intestinal obstruction, which is called the DIOS or meconium ileus if they are babies. And also patients can have a small bubble bacterial overgrowth. And uh, patients are also at increased risk of colon cancer due to increased inflammation. 85% of patients will have pancreatic insufficiency and the remaining 15% of CF patients are increased risk of pancreatitis, which can also rarely lead to pancreatic insufficiency. CF patients are also at risk of liver involvement which is a wide spectrum of involvement ranging from focal biliary fibrosis to the more severe manifestation, which is called multilobular biliary cirrhosis with portal hypertension. The CFTR proteins are also expressed in the sweat glands, 
and dysfunction leads to sodium losses in the sweat. And also males with cystic fibrosis can have infertility due to a poor development of bas difference. Many of the CF patients can also have poor bone growth. Typically, CF patients are managed in CF foundation accredited centers by a multidisciplinary team, which includes a pulmonologist, a registered dietitian, a social worker, a registered nurse coordinator, a pharmacist, and also frequently CF patients are also seen by a gastroenterologist and endocrinologist to meet these clinical needs. I would just like to add the respiratory therapist is also a, an important member of our team to help out with the pulmonary complications of CF. CF patients are at risk of nutritional failure or malnutrition due to a variety of reasons. The, their resting energy expenditure is high due to inflammatory catabolism. Despite the pancreatic replacement therapy or PERT, what we call, they can still have residual malabsorption. Patients with CF, given the nature of the disease with frequent exacerbations, can have poor appetite due to frequent infections or due to sinusitis or due to GI symptoms, and also can have increased losses. For example, patients with increased lung infections can have expectoration with protein loss. So due to multiple reasons, patients are at risk of um, nutritional failure. Yes, I, I agree. I would also like to add that because the disease involves the pancreas, we see an increased incidence of abnormal glucose tolerance and increased risk of CF-related diabetes, which can make the whole disease even more challenging to deal with, especially from a nutrition standpoint. So you mentioned in your article a shifting landscape of nutritional care for patients with cystic fibrosis, particularly with the advent of highly effective modulators. Could you briefly share what you see are some of the major evolutions in the focuses of nutritional management for these patients? Yeah, I'd be happy to talk about that. I've been working in cystic fibrosis for over 30 years now, and I've seen dramatic changes um, in the nutritional status and nutritional management of individuals with cystic fibrosis. When I first started working in, in CF, it wasn't too long after they changed the nutrition recommendations for CF going from a low-fat diet to a um, higher-fat diet or a higher-calorie diet to help manage malnutrition. And one of the reasons they could make this change to a higher-fat diet, which meant more calories in the diet, was because of the advent of enteric-coated enzymes, which happened around the 1970s. Prior to that, they did not have enteric-coated enzymes on the market, and they didn't work very well. The gastric acid destroyed most of the active enzyme. So patients, when they consumed a high-fat diet, had a lot of gastrointestinal symptoms and steatorrhea and losses. So that made a really big difference in terms of being able to liberalize the diet. We also saw uh, around the year 2000, I believe it was, more states engaging in newborn screening. So we were able to pick up the diagnosis a lot quicker. In the past, the patients were diagnosed based on symptoms. So most commonly when they were diagnosed, they were pretty malnourished. So they were behind the eight ball, so to speak. When we have the newborn screening, the patients are screened at birth. And we usually find out about the diagnosis within a couple of weeks of birth. And in that way, we can intervene much earlier with pancreatic enzymes and higher calorie formulas or supplementing breast milk as needed. So that made a huge difference in terms of changing the course of the nutritional management of CF and in turn the pulmonary manifestations too, which tend to follow the severe malnutrition. 
congratulations on your third years. You clearly have a lot of experience uh, in the nutritional care of these patients. Thank you. It's just a fascinating field to work in and CF. And when I first started working in it, you know, it just, the malnutrition was so profound. It really interests me and, and wanted to help these patients as much as I can. So that's why I chose to go into this pathway. And I'm at my third CF center over the past 30 to 31 years. Vitamin D deficiency and insufficiency were associated with clinical outcomes in cystic fibrosis and increased vitamin D concentrations were associated with better pulmonary function tests in children and adults. However, eight randomized controlled trials with increased additional vitamin D supplementation did not find a difference in bone disease, pulmonary status, and immunological outcomes when compared with the placebo group. Would you have any thoughts about this apparent discordance in findings? So interestingly, like, so vitamins, we traditionally, we consider the vitamin status in patients as suboptimal and optimal. So now there is a lot of talk about uh, vitamins acting as either immunomodulators. We have good evidence in, in IBD disease that um, vitamin D correlates with disease activity and any advantage of keeping higher vitamin D levels in affecting the disease course. Similar thought in cystic fibrosis led to investigations rather than considering deficient or sufficient the newer thought is keeping the vitamin D status optimal or suboptimal. The same thing holds good for other vitamins, such as vitamin A, vitamin E, because of their other roles, such as um, antioxidant or modulators, immunomodulators, etc. So um, this meta-analysis reviewed eight randomized controlled trials, and all these trials, the intervention group received additional supplemental vitamin D, and the control group just received regular doses of vitamin D. And the intervention group had higher vitamin D levels as expected, a mean average of 10 nanogram per milliliter higher in the intervention group compared to the control group. However, that increase in vitamin D did not actively translate into clinical outcomes or improvement in clinical outcomes. But however, this is the first study kind of exploring this way, uh, the association between vitamin D and the clinical outcome. But there are a lot of limitations in this meta-analysis as addressed by the authors, such as small sample size, very heterogeneous population. Some of them are children, pediatric studies, some of them are adults. And then also the baseline vitamin D levels were also lower to begin with. So that might have confirmed the outcome. And so further studies down the line will help us to establish whether vitamins do play a, overall a bigger role other than just the deficiency states in, in uh, modulating the disease activity, as I mentioned, like a more antioxidant role or immunomodulated role, et cetera. This is clearly an area that requires additional research. Shifting gears, it appears there needs to be a balance between the needs for sodium chloride in these patients and the potential detriment of excess sodium intake. What is your approach to assessing need for sodium chloride and its repletion? I'd be happy to answer that, but I think we need to take one step back. When we were talking earlier about the shifting landscape, the one thing that I apologize that uh, we didn't mention there was the advent of highly effective modulators in the care of cystic fibrosis. Most of our patients, at least older children and adults, qualify for a highly effective modulator, which has really impacted nutrition in a number of ways including easier time gaining weight. It seems to lower metabolic demands and uh, we see higher vitamin A levels as a result. And one of the other things too that ties into the salt question is the lowering of the, of the salt losses in the sweat. 
So there was a study, an ongoing study called the CHECK study that our center participated in, where they measured the sodium chloride levels in the sweat of patients before and after taking highly effective modulators. And in some of the patients, the medications actually changed the levels to normal values. So patients were not losing significantly more salt than people without cystic fibrosis, which is pretty remarkable. In another group of patients, there was a modest decrease in the amount of salt loss. And in another group of patients, there was no significant change in the amount of salt loss in their sweat. So without having done the sweat test, we don't really know for sure if patients are able to modify their salt intake to decrease the amounts without having to worry about hyponatremic dehydration. In our infants, which most of them do not qualify yet for a highly effective modulator, we really haven't changed salt recommendations. We recommend salt additives on a daily basis. And part of the reason for that is the fact that the infant foods are very low in salt or salt-free in that particular population as well is more susceptible to severe effects of hyponatremic dehydration. So we're pretty careful with that group and we have not modified our salt recommendations. But for older patients, it may be feasible for patients to just moderate their salt intake on a daily basis uh, with the exception of times when they're sweating excessively, such as you know sports or activities or being outside in the heat or if they're febrile, it's usually better to err on the the side of caution and add extra salt to their food or have some salty snacks. Very interesting. Uh, Before we close, are there any additional comments that you would like to share with our listeners? So I want to emphasize that when uh, Dr. Dorothy Anderson um, initially described cystic fibrosis in 1938, the median survival at the time was less than a year, closer to six months. Now, fast forward, now the median predicted survival is approximately 50 years. The improvement in respiratory care and the improvement in uh, nutrition, mainly the aggressive nutritional approaches, are the keys for this success, along with the newborn screen, as uh, Cherry alluded. So this improvement has been possible with a huge collaborative partnership efforts between our patients, families with cystic fibrosis, and um, the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation, and clinicians who take care of patients with CF, and then also researchers. It's a classic example of a huge collaborative effort between all parties. I also wanted to acknowledge that the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation runs a lot of training programs for clinicians who are interested in learning more about CF. Their website, cff.org, is a good resource to begin with. And also, if you are working in a Cystic Fibrosis Accredited Center, um, you can also reach out to your, uh, pro- uh, your center director to get more information. And thank you so much for this opportunity. Thank you for sharing all that very invaluable and helpful resources, as well as your expertise on this very important topic. I invite our listeners to learn more about management of vitamins and minerals for patients with cystic fibrosis in the October 2022 issue of Nutrition and Clinical Practice. <laughs>